Have you ever been awestruck by a view? I have not personally traveled far and wide, but one particular memory for me really sticks out, and that was on a ski trip in the Rocky Mountains about 10 years ago or so. I was riding one of the lifts that is higher up the mountain, and as it ascended, I distinctly remember looking over my right shoulder, I was all alone, and I was stunned by the view, the, just the magnitude of it, the snow-capped peaks, the valleys, it seemed to extend forever, filling the horizon. It was breathtaking. It was amazing. I remember struggling to get my hands around what I was seeing, trying to somehow quantify what made it so magnificent and really was finally left at the point where you just worship, you just thank God for what he made. What, what can you say to explain what made it so great? It just was. By nature of its existence, it was a breathtaking, astounding view. And Hosea 11, I believe, is a portion of Scripture that provides us with an astounding view of God's love. In a similar way to seeing a panorama, this chapter provides us with, with a view of God that is awe-inspiring. It shows us God's love at an intimate level, and it reveals the character of God to us. In the first three chapters of the book of Hosea, really, they portray the real-life illustration of God's relationship with Israel. He told his prophet Hosea to go and love a harlot for a wife, an unfaithful wife. And he told him to do that because it illustrated his relationship with unfaithful Israel. In chapters 4 through 10, the, the real-life illustration gives way to the message of the prophet Hosea to the people of Israel. And it's largely an indictment of the people for rejecting the Lord, rejecting the one who had loved them, for being unfaithful to him in the same way that Hosea's wife was unfaithful to Hosea. Throughout the chapters leading up to chapter 11 of Hosea, there are glimpses of grace and restoration. And there are even some eschatological promises woven in that are intended to woo Israel to repentance, to call Israel back. But ultimately, Israel does not repent. They are unfaithful. Chapter 10, verse 13, might, just provides us with a, with a summary just to get a glimpse, just to give us a little background of, of Israel's condition. Hosea 10, 13 says, you have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way, in your numerous warriors. By the time you get to chapter 11 of Hosea, the picture for Israel is bleak. It is a bleak picture. But then, Almost abruptly in chapter 11, God's unending mercy and loving kindness rise before us, and we see a view, this panorama of God's wondrous love. 
Please follow along as I read Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king, because they refused to return to me. The sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me. Though they call them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. Here in Hosea chapter 11, Hosea reveals an astounding panorama of God's love for his chosen people. And if you're taking notes, the that panorama will serve as our outline as we see two stunning features that display the wonder of God's love. Two stunning features that display the wonder of God's love. And the first stunning feature in this panoramic view is the valley of unreciprocated love. Our view begins in a valley of unreciprocated love. And Similar to a view of mountains, the peaks in this panorama are made more stunning, more wonderful when they're juxtaposed to the valleys. If you took a little snapshot of the summit or the peak of Mount McKinley and that was all you had in view, it would look like a mountain. But it becomes stunning when you see it rising from the level down at the base and surrounded by the smaller mountains and the trees and the valleys. And that's that's what we have here. And so in verses 1 through 4, we begin in this valley as God recounts the precedent of Israel's, or of his own, per se, unreciprocated love. Israel does not reciprocate the love of God. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 1 takes us back to the early stages of Israel as a nation and God's unique love that he had set on this particular people to be his own. From out of all the nations on earth, 
Every last one in a unique way, God had set his love on this particular people, on Israel. Moses makes this clear in Deuteronomy 7 as his words convey the idea that Hosea is really picking up and that we have in verse 1. Moses said in Deuteronomy 7, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. God loved Israel because he chose to love Israel. That's why. Because he did. And as a nation, they were the recipients of this unique, electing love which he initiated. And it's because of that love that he called them out of Egypt. The second portion of verse 1 highlights what is really the supreme act of God's mercy and loving kindness toward his people in the Old Testament, and that is when he brought them out of their bondage to Egypt, when he redeemed them. And note the personal, intimate language that's used. It is my son, God says, that he called out of Egypt. Not a strange people, not an alien people to him, not a random nation, but his own people, the people that he had set his love on. And this idea of a father loving this son and caring for Israel as a son picks up what God had told Moses and Aaron in Exodus 4. He said, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. God loved Israel with the affection of a father for a son. And that imagery is very important as we move through these verses to, to bring to mind the profundity of God's love for this people. Now, before we move on to verse 2, we just want to note that this unique relationship that's conveyed by the words of Hosea in verse 1 is picked up by Matthew in chapter 2, verse 15 of his gospel, and it's applied to Christ. It's applied to Jesus and this is done to really emphasize the solidarity between Jesus, the Son of God, and Israel, God's firstborn son, as a people. It's the one, Jesus, being in solidarity with the many, the people of Israel. When Matthew uses that, he shows that in an analogous way, God called his son the perfect one out of Egypt after he had been harbored there in security from Herod. But the reminiscing of this early love that God had for his people throws their response to God into stark relief. As we head into verse 2, we're going to see how the people responded. How did this firstborn son, loved so intimately by God, respond? It says, the more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Plainly, the people did not reciprocate the Lord's love. He had brought them out of bondage. He had brought them out of Egypt, yet they went away. He had drawn them out, and they turned from him. Throughout Hosea, really, the, 
this idolatry, this persistent chasing after idols and false gods and paganism, it marks the people of Israel. And the NASB helps us by showing that they kept on doing this. And that's the idea inherent in the words used and the terms used in the text. They were continually, habitually going after other gods. Their course of life was not directed toward their loving heavenly father, but toward paganism, toward idolatry. Just think how long was it after they came out of the land of Egypt before we already saw that that heart displayed as they worshiped the golden calf. But in spite of that, in spite of their wayward hearts, God continued to love them. Look at verse three. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. The beginning personal pronoun in verse 3 is emphatic. God is trying to show they were turning after me, yet I myself, God, I'm the one who cared for them. It was God who had personally cared for Israel. Here Israel is referred to as Ephraim, that is um, very common throughout the book of Hosea, particularly as he zeroes in on the, the northern tribes, the ten tribes. God had cared for them personally. He took them in his arms. He healed them. He taught them how to walk. The picture is of a father guiding, caring, instructing, leading a toddling child as they struggle to get their footing. And those of you who've had the privilege of, of experiencing that or, or seeing that, you, you get the pictures. God uses this picture that's familiar to our humanity, this tender care, gentle support for his people, this people who kept going after false gods and idols. This is a similar idea to the words of Moses that were used when he said to the people that the Lord carried them as a man carries his son in Deuteronomy 131. But even as they were guided along tenderly, even as God was showing them himself how to walk, himself tenderly, gently leading them, they would not turn their hearts toward God. The last line of verse three, they did not know that I healed them. They did not know that I healed them. This is not intellectual awareness. This is not saying they couldn't, they just, they just couldn't figure it out. It was a mystery. They didn't know that I was the one teaching them how to walk. It wasn't that they couldn't figure it out, it's that they wouldn't figure it out. The best sense of the, the terminology is they wouldn't acknowledge the Lord's care. They wouldn't acknowledge the one who had cared for them, had carried them as a father carries his son. This child, this child that was the object of God's affection They wouldn't acknowledge his loving care. They ignored him. They lived as if they were completely ignorant of everything that the Lord had done for them. They had spiritual amnesia, the spiritual amnesia that Moses said would come upon them if they didn't guard their hearts to remember the Lord their God as he brought them into the land. Here we see them spurning their loving father as a wayward child. 
verse 4, the imagery shifts a little bit from this picture of God as a loving father to God as a herdsman caring for livestock. He says, I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. And I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. And the NESB says cords of a man. The ESB captures the idea well, and they say trans, the translation, the cords of kindness. Cords of kindness, humane cords. God led the people. God led this, this beast of burden, to use the imagery, in a humane, kind way. They weren't treated roughly. They weren't treated without compassion. God was a gentle, merciful caretaker. Contrast that picture of God leading Israel with what they had known in Egypt. It's completely separate, completely 180 degrees. They knew a hard taskmaster in Egypt. The yoke of bondage, the yoke of slavery, they were not led with gentleness, with kindness. God says, I led you gently in a humane fashion. I was an entirely different type of master for this people than they had known in Egypt. Continuing this pastoral scene, he says he lifted the yoke from their jaws. It's a... If you've been around livestock, maybe you, you could just picture the, the herdsman removing the bit or, or the bridle from, from the mouth of this animal and removing the, or the yoke from the neck and maybe patting the animal on the neck and bending down with a hand of food and feeding gently, kindly this animal, endearing yourself to this animal and in return expecting the animal to be endeared to you. The image shows us that that would be the natural expected response to reciprocate kindness, to reciprocate love for this care and concern that was being showed. But Israel was so hardened of heart, so stiff-necked in their rebellion, they absolutely would not reciprocate the Lord's love. It didn't matter how he led them. It didn't matter how kind he was. They didn't reciprocate. And before we move to verse 5, there's, there's just an important warning for us. It is, we are supposed to be indignant when we hear this. You are supposed, it is supposed to resonate with you to say, how could Israel not love God after he treated them this way? What type of animal would reject this, this loving care, this guidance, this tender compassion? And so there's, there's a right aspect where we hear this and we respond that way. This, is, this should make us recoil. But at the same time, we can't stand back, cast stones at Israel. Every one of us, apart from the grace of Christ, spurned God. Every one of us had a stiff arm in his face. Every one of us was a, a hater of God, a lover of self, in our unredeemed unregenerate state. As we hear these words, we are to be shocked at Israel's hard-heartedness. As we move into the verses pertaining to their judgment, we are to be wary of our own hard-heartedness, our own stubbornness, and 
Thank God for his grace that crushes and breaks hard hearts. Israel had us experienced abundant, gracious care from the Lord, and yet they forsook him. They broke the covenant that he had established. And as the Lord had made clear through Moses, the breaking of that covenant would bring penalty, would bring punishment. And verses 5 through 7 describe this punishment. Verse 5, they will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king because they refused to return to me. At times throughout Hosea, Egypt is used as a as a metonym to refer to captivity. And in your translation, it may actually say they will return to Egypt, picking up on that idea that they're going to go back to captivity. The NAS says they will not return to the land of Egypt, but they're going to Assyria. Either way, whichever one of those translations, the idea is is the same. They're going back to captivity. They're going to be punished. And Assyria is going to be the one who takes them. There's an important word play that's used in the original in this verse, and it's the word shuv, which, which means to turn or to return. And in, in certain contexts, it, it connotes repentance. It denotes the, the critical, the important turning of a heart toward God in repentance. And here God picks up on that terminology and says they're, they're going to return to captivity because they will not turn to me. They're going back where he had redeemed them from, back to captivity, back to bondage, because they've not turned to their loving, caring Heavenly Father in repentance. They're literally going back to bondage because they spiritually will not turn their hearts toward God. God's love for Israel has not waned As he makes clear in verse 5, they have refused to return, and that is the cause of their punishment. And verse 6 describes what is coming. The sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. This is the whirlwind of destruction associated with a vicious Assyrian army that was going to come in and destroy Israel. The words, cities, the gates, it's the, the places of security are going to be laid low. God is bringing Assyria as an instrument of punishment and their idolatrous scheming, their counsels, their, their idolatrous wayward devising is going to be brought low as they are consumed by an invading army. Verse 7 continues, So my people are bent on turning from me. Though they call them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. Verse 7 reveals again the depth of Israel's apostasy, the depth of their waywardness, the depth of their idolatry. And again, that important terminology, that turning comes into play. The language in this verse is indicating that their, their entire course of life was away from God. Their entire course of life was away from the one who had cared for them as a father leading a young child, who had cared for them as a herdsman gently cares 
for his livestock. It is what marks them as a people. It is what defined their response to God. The last two lines of verse 7 are interpreted variously between the versions we use, the NAS and ESV. And so just a word that the NASB takes the subject that's doing the calling, though they call to, to be the prophets calling to the people. While the ESV, for example, takes the subject as actually Israel, the people calling out themselves to God. And there's some variation in who or what they're calling to in the response. The NAS sees this as the prophets calling people to cry out to God. While the ESV shows it's Israel calling out, but God's not going to respond. Contextually, I think that the NAS makes the most sense. Throughout this passage, Israel is shown to be bent on turning. Even at the beginning of verse 7, they're bent on turning from God. They're settled in their apostasy. They continue to go away. And so this idea that the prophets would call to them with the message to repent, to turn, and yet they would not, it fits. And Hosea would have experienced this firsthand as he preached God's indictments to this people and even tried to woo them with promises of future restoration, and they would not turn. They would not call to the one on high. The direction of the heart is so critical in God's word, and throughout this text, we're shown repetitively that the direction, the inclination of the heart of this people was away from God. The call throughout Hosea is for them to turn, to turn their heart to God, to turn to the one who loved them. And yet they're always shown to be turning in idolatry, spurning all that he had showed himself to be to them. And this is the valley. This is the valley in our panorama. God's love is still shown. But the people, they won't respond. It's marked by his love, but the people, their response, the characteristic of them is that they refuse. They will not reciprocate God's love and they're going to be judged. But from this valley of unreciprocated love in verse 7, verse 8 abruptly begins a stunning ascent really to the unascendable heights of God's love in this picture. God's unvanquished love, it, it, the unconquerable love, undefeated love shines forth beginning in verse 8. And in the flow of this chapter, it is abrupt against the backdrop of Israel's utter rebellion, refusal to love God. Verse 8 comes out of nowhere. And the implication for those of us hearing this is to be awestruck. Allow yourself to catch the flow of the text and to be in awe at what God says, beginning in verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. In verse 8, the Lord turns to himself and he addresses to himself four questions. The content of all four questions concerns the same thing the utter annihilation of his people. Cutting off the covenant people, their destruction, 
the consuming totally and utterly of this people that had turned from him. Adma and Zeboim were cities that were wiped off the face of the earth when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed with fire and brimstone. And the point of the question is, is that the Lord is saying, how could I treat my people? How could I treat my firstborn son? How could I treat the one that I love that I've called out of Egypt like these pagan nations? The implication is that he won't. He's not going to treat his people like those cities. They're going to be punished, but they're not going to be forever cut off, inexplicably. The fifth line of verse 8 and, and the last line of verse 8 really are an act of condescension for our behalf. And the prophecy here pulls the curtain back, so to speak, and reveals God's heart to us and to his people. We see a picture of the inner workings of Almighty God, his heart, his emotions directed in love toward his people as he considers what will happen to them. And all that we see is grace, mercy, loving kindness, good news, gospel realities. He says, my heart is turned over within me. Listen to this line in in the ESV. My heart recoils. My heart recoils within me. Almighty God, motivated by nothing less than divine love, says that he recoils at the aspect of annihilating this people because he loves them. He recoils from the idea of wiping this people off the face of the earth because of his love for them. We hear that. How can his compassions be kindled for them? They deserve to be destroyed. Just the indictments from this chapter alone make that clear. They deserve to be destroyed. And that's exactly the point. God's love is revealed to be so profound because he's loving a people who don't deserve to be loved. His heart is recoiled at destroying a people that doesn't love him back, does not obey him, does not want him as their loving caretaker. Listen to the last line of verse 8. All my compassions are kindled. Again, listen to the ESV. My compassions grow warm and tender. God says in his heart, he's showing us his heart, that it is as if a fire is stoked. He is being moved to burn with compassion and mercy for this unrepentant, hard-hearted people. God is being moved by his love to love this people that absolutely don't deserve it. What an intimate look this is at the, at the heart of God at the character of Almighty God. Luther says that the whole scriptures aim at this, that we should believe and be confident that God is gracious and merciful. And this view in this passage makes that utterly clear. God is moved to compassion for people who deserve destruction. 
After reviewing this glimpse into his heart, this glimpse into his mercy and goodness, he moves from verses 8 into verse 9, and we have this, the settled decision of unvanquished love. We have the portrayal of unvanquished love in verse 8, this, this emotional look at the inner workings of God. And then in verse 9, we have this settled decision. How will love respond ultimately to his people? God says, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. Israel is going to be punished, as verses 5 through 7 make clear. But God says, I will not destroy them. God will not dispense the full force of his righteous anger and his righteous wrath on this people because he loves them. And here's the key. Even though he would be absolutely righteous to do so, no one could assail the character of God for, for, for destroying this people. And yet he says, I will not destroy them again. I will not execute my fierce anger. And those of us who know Christ should have our hearts burning with gospel truth as you hear this. We deserve destruction. Those who know Christ deserved wrath. But God showed his love for those who don't deserve it. We were saved from the wrath that we deserved, and God is demonstrating that love here in this portrayal where he will not destroy his chosen people, not because of anything that they've done, simply because he loves them. This is the, the ascent in this panorama, the peak of God's love. And we may wonder why. Why? Why would God treat this people this way? Why would he respond to them in favor? And the answer comes at the end of verse 9, and I think this is the pinnacle of the entire passage. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. We ask, why does God love like he loves? And his answer is, because I'm God and I'm not like you. God is not like you and me. He is not like a man. He does not have fickle emotions. He's not turned to and fro in his heart. He is settled. And he says, I'm completely and utterly set apart from you. And I demonstrate that by portraying the way that I love and that you don't. We often think of holiness in the ethical sense, right? God's purity, God's separation from sin, and that's right. But more broadly, God's holiness is his total distinction from everything, his transcendence. He's distinct from everything we know as human. And here, amazingly, he connects that to his love, to help get our minds around that, imagine the scene, the throne room that Isaiah saw that we alluded to, and you see the shaking room and the smoke filling the room and the shaking and the trembling and God's utter distinction on display. And here in Hosea, God says, my love displays that exact same distinction. I'm totally separate from you. My holy character is marked out by the way that I love. 
His love is no less deserving of our awe and reverence than the scene that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. That's the point. His love demands that response. It sets him apart. We have to ask, you hear these words, the right response to this is who loves like this? That's the response. It's so simple. God loves like this because he's God and not a man, and yet there's so much profundity in those words. It's who he is. It's how he loves. Paul shows the same distinction in the New Testament. This distinction between the way God loves and the way that man loves is revealed in the sacrifice of Christ, and that's shown to us in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For, no one, will, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If God were like us, there would be no salvation. If God were like us, we would have no hope. God's loving kindness is extended inexplicably, wonderfully to those who absolutely don't deserve it and those who don't reciprocate. It's unconquered. It's unvanquished by the rebellion of his people. And those who know Christ have experienced God's unvanquished love at their rebellion and the deadness of their hearts and has set aside a people for himself by grace. It's amazing, holy love Verse 9 ends with a further assertion that God will not destroy his people. And then verse 10 moves from this portrayal of God's love to the promises that flow from it. Verse 9 again asserts, I will not come in wrath. God is not going to destroy again his people. Verse 10, they will walk after the Lord he will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. The picture in Hosea 11 does not end with the people simply being punished and not destroyed. They will be restored. This people the people that rejected God will be restored. And the picture is of God summoning his people with a roar and contrary to their history of turning away from him and turning toward idols, they turn toward him in fear and reverence, in repentance. That's the image being connoted by trembling birds they come back and they come back with a proper view of their sin and a proper view of their God and their repentance and they come to his summoning roar and remember there is an appropriate fear that characterizes repentance reverence and awe for the Lord and one day 
In the future, Israel will return to the Lord in fearful repentance, and they will be settled in the land of promise. This is a declaration of the Lord, he says. This will happen. It is certain. It is a promise. It hasn't happened yet, but it's going to. Verses 10 and 11 pick up what Hosea portrayed earlier in chapter 3, verse 5, where this future restoration is also described, and it really helps us to get a, a little bit fuller picture of what's happening in verses 10 through 11. It says, Afterward, the sons of Israel will return again. They're turning, they're returning, and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. They will be repentant, and they will come back seeking the Lord their God and David their king. And we know that as Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The sacrificial work of the Messiah is complete, and one day this remnant of God's chosen people will turn back, turn their hearts toward God, and come to their Messiah, to their King. You say, well, where do we fit in? Well, if we've been here over the last many weeks, we know that God has extended his love to the ungodly, to the Gentiles that were formerly disobedient through Christ. And we currently are, are coming to the Lord through Christ and that one day he will pour out his mercy on his people in full in God's wisdom, we now, the Gentiles, we were able to turn to the Messiah by faith. But one day we will be joined by this nation, all bowing the knee to Jesus Christ. While this, the precedent of unreciprocated love, the, the failure of Israel to respond appropriately to God's love and then his inexplicable response have been focused on Israel, there are important warnings for us as well. We can't look at Israel's sin and point a finger and not realize that we cannot, we must guard our hearts from growing flippant, from growing overly familiar with God's tender care and his gentle yoke. We've received the gentle yoke of Christ by grace, but it is so easy because of the tendencies in our heart to grow familiar with that, to grow flippant, to the Lord's care to his guidance for those who are his own. The Lord desires that our love would be, that his love would be reciprocated, albeit imperfectly. But in our faith-driven striving, our hearts towards him should be marked by, by fear and awe and reverence as we submit to him with our hearts bent toward him. That's the picture. That's the prophetic picture here of what it looks like when God's people return for restoration, for repentance, to be established for all eternity in their land. And there's a warning here for those who have not turned to the Lord. Those who enjoy the benefits, the care of God's love and yet persist in turning from him, in turning away from him. The word is clear, repent. 
Turn your heart toward God who has shown himself to be compassionate, inexplicably merciful. Don't hear of God's love and then turn to self. Don't spurn this God. Don't spurn this mercy, this compassion. When Christ comes again, it, he will be bringing punishment, condemnation, restoration for those who have sought refuge in God's mercy. Turn to Christ while the day is still called today as we have been warned about in the scriptures. Hosea 11 paints a picture. It's a picture similar to an awe-inspiring view that really, if we're honest, you just can't get your hands around. God's love, his unvanquished love is an unascendable peak in this landscape. But with that view, with that picture, the picture from this prophet of God's love, of God's heart, of God setting himself apart in his love, showing himself to be utterly distinct, with all that in mind, I want to close with very familiar words from the Apostle John that I hope will have some fresh nuance after considering Hosea 11. John writes this in 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What a God. What a love. What a God who has shown himself to us to be merciful and compassionate and through Christ has made a way for us to be his own. Please pray with me.